Um, okay, so revelation is the testimony of Jesus. It is the evidence he is giving for who he is, for what he's doing, um, and also for um, who we are. So um, one of the titles used for Jesus in Revelation is the faithful and true witness. Um, so witness is someone who gives a testimony. So we know because Jesus is faithful and true, his testimony is going to be also faithful and true, something we can believe and trust and listen to and obey. Um, so um, first, I'm going to jump a bit before Revelation, I'm going to jump all the way back to the Gospels. Um, when Jesus first came to earth, he didn't come and just expect everyone to believe what he said. Even though he had provided evidence for himself in the scriptures, um, he still gave more proof of who he was through the miracles. Um, actually, here, let me, let me find this. I think this is important. No, it actually looks like I don't have any more, but um, in part, there's a certain chapter in the Gospels um, where Jesus is talking about what he's talking about, how the people can know that they can believe him. And basically he says, because I don't testify of myself, other people and other things testify of me. So he mentions John the Baptist. He mentions the miracles. Um but now we get to Revelation, and at this point, he's died, he's rose again, and he's ultimately proven that he is the Son of God. Um, and so now he is considered the faithful and true witness. He can testify of himself. And so, and he does testify of himself in Revelation. He talks about who he is, um, especially in the letters. Um, okay, so the way I looked at the letters was they reveal two things they reveal who jesus is and then they reveal his heart for the church um now these letters they're different they're a little different from the epistles written by like paul and john because these ones are were word for word given by jesus and i think that's probably because they're supposed to be applicable for every church the whole church for all time um so first of all ephesus Let me just find it quickly. Okay. To the church in Ephesus, he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And these two symbols were explained to us just before this chapter in chapter one. Um, so the stars are the angels, which aren't necessarily like angels like we think of, but probably more like pastors or leaders. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so what Jesus is saying is that, um, so he's holding the leaders of the church. He is uh, sustaining them. He's protecting them and keeping them. He has them in his hand, in his control, in his power. Um, and then he's walking among the churches. So basically he's with them, even though he, at that time he wasn't with them physically, he was in heaven, but he was showing them that he was still with them anyway. So those are very encouraging things for us because especially if we are um, have some position of leadership because we know that we're we're held in Jesus' hand. Um, so and then, but the church in Ephesus it had a problem 
And that's a problem which I called the Martha complex. Um, so it has to do with, um, uh, you know, the story of Martha and Mary and Martha's serving Jesus, trying to serve Jesus, but Mary's just there sitting and listening. Um, so the church in Ephesus, they were doing lots of things for Jesus. They were working for him, serving for him, serving him. Um, but they had lost their first love. So it seems there was a level of intimacy in their relationship with him that they had lost. And probably as a result, they'd also had less love for each other, um, which, as we know, is not Jesus's heart for the church. He wants it to be a relationship between us and him. And I mean, in, in, in the end, that's what it is. It's complete unity between us and him. And if we don't have that love and that unity now, then how are we supposed to have it later on? Um, so that's Ephesus. Then there's Smyrna. To, Smyr to the church in Smyrna, he's the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And this title it is directly related to his message, which he's telling them that they're going to suffer, but if they're faithful, they'll receive the crown of life. Um, so in this letter, what we're shown is that um, we're not promised protection from all suffering. We are going to go through suffering, but there's um, the life that we're going to receive, the eternal life we're going to receive is greater than the suffering that we have now. Um, and so what I wrote in my paper is that this church is the epitome of taking up your, your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus. Um, because that's that's what they did. They were willing to do anything, to give up anything, and to go through suffering, um, because they they knew that the what they were going to receive after the suffering was greater than what the suffering they were going through. Okay, um, and then I'm going to skip over Pergamum because I still need to work on that. Um, and then Thyatira, so. Um, Lily had a really good point about the the feet of burnished bronze. I did not I did not figure out anything about that. Um, what I was thinking about was the title of the Son of God, um, because to the church in Thyatira, the issue was um, seemed to be idolatry. So they were following at, oh, after someone who Jesus called Jezebel, um, who was teaching them to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Both things. They were done as idol worship. Um, so Jesus, by introducing himself as the son of God, he's um, showing that he has the highest authority. He has the authority over any of their any of their idols. Um, and to further show that, he promises that those who overcome, that he is going to give them authority also. Authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. Um, so Jesus, he is the highest authority and he has the right to give us that authority. Um, so, for it's it's not a, it's foolish to to worship idols, to go after idols, thinking they'll give you something that God won't. Because in the end, Jesus is going to give us authority over everything. So there's really nothing better you can get. Okay, um, really quick about Sardis. Um, to Sardis, he introduces himself as he who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars again the seven stars are the seven angels or church leaders um and the seven spirits of god they are mentioned elsewhere they're mentioned in the throne room where it meant where it says that there are seven lamps of fire burning 
And those are the seven spirits of God. And then also, also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, um, it mentions what the seven spirits are. And um, I thought it was interesting that Jesus using this title because it means that um, every aspect of the spirit or the fullness of the spirit rests in him, which is similar to what is said, um, what Paul said in one of his letters about that the fullness of the Godhead rests in Jesus. So I thought that was an interesting, interesting parallel. Um, and then I'm going to skip over Philadelphia because Lily said everything that needs to be said. Uh, and then to the church of Laodicea. And I think these are probably my favorite titles for Jesus. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of the creation of God. Um, so uh, let's see. Okay, so I, I found a good quote about him being the amen. So is it okay if I read that? Okay, so it says, Jesus is amen in every single title which he bears. He is your husband, never seeking a divorce, your friend, sticking closer than a brother, your shepherd with you in death's dark veil, your help and your deliverer, your castle and your high tower, the horn of your strength, your confidence, your joy, your all in all, and your yea and amen in all. Um. So that's, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, and then he's the faithful and true witness. Um, and then I think Lily mentioned about the beginning of the creation of God. It doesn't mean that he was the first created being. It just means that he's the, um, the, the head or the governor over all of creation. I didn't cover this one. Which one? Laodicea. Oh, the, uh, the beginning of the creation of God. That was the church. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, there I mentioned it. Um, okay. All right. And then, so that finishes the letters. Um, then I just like to point out the title of the lamb of God, um, which is used over 20 times in revelation. So it's used a whole lot. And actually the only, um, I think it's the only other place in the gospels or the only other place in the new Testament, um, where he's called, where Jesus is called the lamb of God is in John's gospel. So this is kind of John's thing, calling Jesus the lamb of God. Um, so obviously this title, it um, demonstrates his, his love for us, his compassion that he laid down his life for us. Um, and I think it's also a representation of his authority because he died as the lamb who was slain and then he also resurrected. So it also demonstrates his authority over death and over sin and all that. So it goes both ways. Okay. So that is who Jesus says um, he is. Um, and then now we're going to look at who we are in the book of Revelation. Um, okay. So first of all, um, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. So you see that in the letters, he's addressing the churches. Um, and as the church, we are to be the light of the world, and we're also to be the salt of the earth. And this is especially important in the end times, because this is when people are going to be afraid. They're going to be looking for hope, looking for light. And if they look at us and we're also afraid or we're not being loving or not believing, then we're not going to, to lead people to Jesus in the way that we should. Um, so that's one reason it's so important that we know what Jesus' heart for the church is and that we 
obey him and follow him um, in that so that we would be an accurate representation of him. Okay. Um, how much time do I have? And okay. All right. <laughs> More than I thought. Okay. Mm. All right. Um, another title used for us is the saints. Um, and well, back back then, uh, every believer was a saint. It wasn't like um, like we do now, like we say nowadays, where like only the great men and women of faith of the past are considered saints. Here is referring to um, all believers. And the saints aren't mentioned very many times. And usually when they are, it is in relation to suffering. Um, so in the, especially in the 17th, 18th, and 19th chapters of Revelation, <clears throat> it talks about um, the harlot Babylon um, and the way that she persecutes the saints. And it says that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Um, so obviously this is a very terrible and devastating situation and not something that any of us want to be in. Um, but like like with the Church of Smyrna, there was there is and there was hope for believers who are suffering. Um, so in chapter five, it shows the angels and the elders, and they have golden bulls full of incense. And these um, bulls of incense are the prayers of the saints. And later on, um, they're offered up and smoke ascends up to God. And um, it says, after the smoke ascended, the angel took the censer, threw it to the earth. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So these prayers um, of the saints of the suffering went up to God. And the result of it was the next round of judgments, which maybe doesn't make so much sense. Like why would, um, if God heard the the prayers of his people and the suffering, why would he um, just pour out more judgment, which would probably cause more suffering? Um, but the reason for this, first of all, because the judgment is not for us, it's not for his people. Um, and what the judgment is doing is it is bringing the earth further towards ultimate redemption. So all the suffering that's going on, it is um, ridding the earth of evil. It is bringing it to full restoration. Um, so really, the most loving way God can answer the prayers of the suffering is by bringing the earth even closer to, um, yeah, to being perfect and whole again. Um, and this is also can be encouraging for us because sometimes we pray and we have and we have faith, but it looks like we don't have any answers. Um, but we know that in in the heavenlies, in the in the big picture, God is working in our favor, even when it doesn't look like it to our natural eyes. All right. Um, so although the the saints do suffer at the hands of the harlot, um, there is a special protection for us from um, from the judgment 
of God. Um, so in chapter seven, before the angels are going out to harm the earth, um, one angel comes down having the seal of the living God, and he seals he seals the servants of God. He's saying you you can't um, you can't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed um, the servants of God. So God provides this extra level of protection for us, so that when judgment comes, it won't harm us. We will be safe from it. So it's not God's judgment that is coming to harm us. It's the the work of the enemy. So even if we are going through suffering and it feels like um, God is is doing doing it to us, it's not true um, because God is working in our favor. And the suffering we go through, it's because we're in the middle of this war, um, which we do ultimately win. Okay. Um, so in, I think it's still in chapter seven, a title used for us is, um, a great multitude, or at least John sees this great multitude. And I'm not a hundred percent sure what the great multitude is. I, um, put it in connection with the sealed. It seems like it's, um, the servants of God. Um, and they're seen and it's a great multitude of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And they're worshiping and they're serving God at the throne. And um, one of the elders tells John that these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Um, so maybe you could say this multitude is the overcomers because um, like Jesus promised the church of Sardis, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Um, so not quite sure <laughs> who this multitude is exactly, but um, either way, it's it's those who they have gone through all the suffering and they have come out victorious. Okay, and then um, the last identity I have for us, we have for, I have for us is the bride. Um, and so this is a quote by Rick Joyner from The Journey Begins and says, before the Lord returns, he will have a bride that is without blem blemish, who truly takes on his image and likeness. And um, not every believer is going to be a part of the bride. It's only those who really made themselves ready. Um, it's like there's this level of intimacy with Jesus that we need to have here on earth in order to be part of the bride. Um, when the time comes for the bride and the lamb to be married. And um, so one of the um, purposes we can find in suffering is making ourselves ready because we know suffering, it refines us. It, it has the, to be, um, the possibility to make us more like Christ. And so when we're going through suffering, we should count it all joy, like James says, because it's a chance for us to become more like Christ and to be be a part of the bride of these yeah of these believers and overcomers who are very um, close to Jesus okay so all right it mentions that the bride is clothed in white linen um and it says the white linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so I was a little curious about this. So I went to see what other people said about this. 
Um, so the one source I found says that the righteous acts are not their are not their own righteousness. So it's not the um, the righteousness that the saints do, um, but it because it says it's given to the bride. Um, so this guy says it's the gracious bestowment of their Lord which they obtain by faith, the righteousness which results from justification through the merits of the Redeemer. Um, so I don't quite agree with this because the idea then is that it is the righteousness imputed to us by faith and that righteousness we all have. Um, every believer has it. So it doesn't really make sense that um, that is what the bride is clothed in because the bride isn't every believer. Um, so this, this other source said that um, the fine linen is the actual righteous works of the saints. And it's what it's the works which the grace and spirit of Christ has wrought in them. So it is, they're not works that we're doing of our own strength, not works that we can do without him. We need his grace. We need his spirit. Um, but it is those works that in the end, the bride will be clothed with. Um, all right. Um, so to sum up all these identities um, of who we are, they all point to this idea that we are not made to be um, of this world, part of this world. We're made to be with, with Jesus. So um, in this world, we, we have suffering and um, there is, yeah, we, ha we have suffering, but it's not, this isn't what we were made for. Um, if anything, the suffering just reminds us that this is that we weren't made to be a part of this fallen world. We were meant to be a part of a perfect world, um, one in which we are we are with Jesus physically and not just in spirit. Um, okay. All right. Um, so that is just a bit about the testimony of Jesus and the um, evidence that he gives for who he is and who we are. Um, okay, and one thing that is important is how the testimony of Jesus is confirmed. How do we really, really know that it is true? Um, so in 1 Corinthians... Um, Paul is talking about the gospel, but he calls the gospel the testimony of Christ. And he says that it was, it is confirmed in you. And the way it was confirmed, the way the gospel was confirmed to them, it was through, um, it was through miracles and um, various gifts, various signs that the apostles did. And so that's how people knew that the gospel was true, that it was the testimony of Jesus. Um, so how do we know this about Revelation? Um, so first of all, we obviously, we know, we know because it's the word of God, we believe it by faith. Um, but I believe it's also going to be confirmed for unbelievers or for people who, um, aren't very strong in their faith that they will see that revelation is definitely true. Um, first of all, because when the events in it come to pass, um, obviously this is like with the prophets of the Old Testament, um, people 
knew for a fact they were true because Jesus fulfilled Jesus fulfilled them. It's the same with Revelation. We'll know for sure that it's true when it is fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, to people who um, don't believe, and I already mentioned this before, it's that we're representations of Christ. We're the salt and the light. Um, and when people see the testimony of Christ in us, then they will know that it is true. Um, so in the in Revelation, it talks about um, how we have though it talks about those who hold to the testimony of Christ and how that gives them the power to overcome. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. So when we have the testimony of Christ in us, and then we have our testimony that we speak, that also provides evidence um, that revelation is true and that Jesus is true. So we're also witnesses. We also um, were faithful and true witnesses in a lesser sense than Jesus, but we provide our own testimony, our own evidence for, for Jesus. All right, that's basically it. That's all I've got. <laughs>